Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety cleans professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright, Constable, and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And today I'm joined by my law partner, George Backrack. George, say hello to everybody. Hello to everybody. Okay, George and I wanted to start off this episode by acknowledging the passing of one of our friends and one of the surety industry's longtime claims handler. Glenn Spiker passed away on December 26, 2019, after a battle with cancer. Glenn was with uh, F&D, now Zurich, for over 43 years, and the members of our surety and fidelity law group here had the pleasure of working with Glenn on many, many matters uh, over the years. Glenn and his family are in our prayers and thoughts, and uh, he will be dearly missed. George has um, prepared an in-memoriam about Glenn for the Surety Claims Institute newsletter, uh, and we can send that to you if you'd like to see it. Just uh, shoot George uh, Backrack an email, and he'll get it over to you. From that somber note, we need to shift gears to the business at hand today. Uh, We wanted to start off this episode with a recap of Surety Today in 2019. Surety Today had over 438 surety in-house claims handlers call into the program during 2019, and that number is undercounted because several people call in from one pin in a conference room and listen together, um, so it's a little bit undercounted. We had another 1,450 people download the various podcast episodes So we reached nearly 2,000 surety folks during 2019. Our callers were from uh, over 30 different surety companies, ranging from heads of surety claim departments to to newbies. We have regulars and first-time callers almost every month. So, um, you know, doing doing well. Uh, We wanted to uh, send out a huge thank you to everyone for your support and um, hope that you'll continue to support us in 2020. We ask that you uh, help make 2020 the best year yet by passing along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like or share our uh, Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. When you do that, uh, then it lets all the people that follow you know about our posts and then they can join in or sign up. Of course, uh, if you missed the live presentation, you can listen to the recording at multiple locations the Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Podbean, just search for Surety Today, or on our microsite at suretytoday.net. Starting last November, we made our podcasts uh, really fancy with intro music and voiceover introduction and, and music and voiceover uh, closing out. So if you haven't checked out the podcast, you should give a listen. They're, they really sound professional. Uh, We've been doing this since May 2016, so we'll be coming up on four years this May. And you might imagine uh, it it can be a challenge to come up with new and relevant topics each month. So if you have any suggestions for future topics, please please let us know. Uh, Maybe if somebody you think we should be interviewing or issues we should cover, 
just uh, reach out and let us know. Of course, we have muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Our topic today is a 2019 surety case law review. George and I, okay, really it was George this time, <laughs> have gone back over the last half of 2019 and looked at the SFAA blurbs and gathered some cases that we think are worthy of review and comment. The pickings were slim this, uh, this time. There are just not that many juicy cases in the last half of 2019 that we have not already discussed in prior episodes. As we go forward today, we'll mention the cases, but we'll, uh, we'll send around the, the full case citations later to everyone uh, to slow things down trying to do the full case site. Today, we're going to talk about the uh, surety trust fund provisions in the GAI and the bank uh, versus the bank and, and funds in a bank account. We'll talk about waiver and release provisions and payment applications and change orders. We'll talk about illegal subcontracts as a surety defense and other topics. So I'll get us started today by discussing an update to an issue we discussed last month. Um, as, as you will recall, last month, George and I discussed the surety and Chapter 11 bankruptcy plan release and injunction provisions. In the course of the presentation, I discussed a topic I called the cautionary tale. In that topic, I discussed the case of In re Kimball Hill uh, out of the uh, bankruptcy of the Northern District of, of Illinois. The point of the discussion was to convey that a surety needs to be vigilant about complying with bankruptcy plan releases and injunctions because the penalties can be huge. In Kimball Hill, the surety was found liable for breaching the confirmed Chapter 11 plan's release and injunction provisions and was ordered to pay over $9.5 million in damages. There were multiple decisions regarding the matter. The, the issue of liability it was, was bifurcated from damages and the facts were long and complicated. I will not rehash the facts uh, and the procedural history of those cases again here. Suffice it to say that the Kimball Hill Bankruptcy Court found the surety's actions in the case violated the release and injunction provisions, and the court held the surety in contempt. One of the things that was unusual about that case, aside from the huge damage award, was the really remote nature of the alleged violation. The debtor, Kimball Hill, was a subdivision developer, and at the time of its bankruptcy, it owned several properties that were bonded, which it was in the middle of, uh, of developing. The plan of reorganization created a, a trust into which the subdivision property was transferred. The trust then later sold the bonded subdivisions to an entity named J&I LLC. J&I then sold the bonded properties to an entity known as TRG. Thus, the property was transferred three times, and yet the plan injunction and release provisions were still held to be applicable. After our presentation in December, we discovered that the bankruptcy court's decision and damage award had been vacated and remanded on appeal by the district court uh, in October 2019 before our presentation. The court opinion was not linked to the Kimball Hill case in the online database in Westlaw. So if you shepherdize Kimball Hill, you look for the history, you look for any cases talking about the Kimball Hill case, uh, you don't find this district court appellate decision. It's uh, it's very strange. And if you read the decision, it, it doesn't refer to the Kimball Hill decision. So uh, we we didn't we didn't find it. The way we found it was because George was looking at these SFAA blurbs in preparing for this episode, and and then we saw the blurb there in October. So in any event, we need to look at why the court vacated and remanded the bankruptcy court opinion. Uh, the district court case is styled. Fidelity and Deposit Company of Maryland versus TRG Venture 2 LLC. 
In the appeal, F&D raised a number of grounds for reversal of the bankruptcy court ruling. F&D contended that the bankruptcy court lacked subject matter jurisdiction to consider the underlying motion, that the bankruptcy court should have abstained from considering the motion out of concerns of comedy with the underlying state court proceedings. Um, and F&D also challenged whether the plan and the release covered TRG and F&D's claims in the underlying state court proceedings. District Court rejected all of F&D's substantive uh, arguments on appeal. So how did the case get vacated? The final ground for appeal raised by F&D was that the bankruptcy court applied the wrong legal standard in holding F&D in contempt. The bankruptcy court held that a party may be found in contempt if they willfully violated the injunction and that such standard is met if the party, one, had knowledge of the injunction and two, intended the action which violated the injunction. However, this past summer in June of 2019, the Supreme Court issued a decision holding that a court may find a creditor in civil contempt for violating a discharge order if the creditor had a, quote, fair ground of doubt, unquote, as to whether its conduct might be lawful under the discharge order. The district court could not determine if the bankruptcy court's finding of contempt against F&D would satisfy the Supreme Court's new standard, and therefore it vacated the bankruptcy court's ruling and remanded the case for further proceedings to consider the new standard. In order to understand this new contempt standard, we must consider the Supreme Court case of Taggart versus uh, Lorenzen, uh, which uh, set the new standard. The Taggart case did not involve a plan release and injunction, rather it involved a discharge order of a Chapter 7 debtor. The discharge order releases the debtor from all liabilities and bars creditors from attempting to collect debts covered by the order. Thus, the discharge order functions in the same manner as the plan release and injunction. In Taggart, the debtor was being sued by several parties when he filed a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. In the normal course, the bankruptcy court issued a discharge order of the debtor, which barred the parties in the pre-petition litigation from continuing to pursue the debtor. However, Litigation, the litigation continued and various actions were taken involving the debtor after the discharge order was entered. The parties in the litigation contended that the, um, the debtor had rejoined the fray after his discharge and that such action was an exception to the discharge order. The bankruptcy court in, in Taggart applied the same contempt standard that, F, that the F&D bankruptcy court applied, which the Supreme Court characterized as the strict liability approach. The Ninth Circuit on appeal in the Taggart case applied a more lenient, subjective, good-faith standard. The Supreme Court rejected both of those standards and held that a court may hold a creditor in civil contempt for violating a discharge order if there is no fair ground of doubt as to whether the order barred the creditor's conduct. The court clarified, in other words, civil contempt may be appropriate if there is no objectively reasonable basis for concluding that the creditor's conduct might be lawful. Court observed that its standard reflects the fact that civil contempt is a severe remedy and basic concepts of fairness require that those enjoined receive explicit notice of what its conduct is outlawed before being held in contempt. The court concluded that in its view, the standard strikes a careful balance between the interests of creditors and debtors and that the bankruptcy code uh, often to, to uh, seek to achieve that, that balance. So this new standard is worded, sounds rather nebulous to me and and it will be guided by objective reasonableness considerations, which will vary on a case-by-case -case basis. So we're just going to have to wait for the Supreme Court and lower courts to flesh out the boundaries of this new standard before we can affirmatively say what is and what is not contempt in bankruptcy. For now, however, F&D has a reprieve from the prior rulings 
the bankruptcy court um, until the bankruptcy court determines if the new standard changes its view of its contempt ruling. Okay, George. I'm going to call and talk about the case of Guaranteed Company of North America versus Associated Bank. Uh, in that case, out of the U.S. District Court in, Mon in Minnesota, the surety claims superior rights against a secured lender bank to earned and paid bonded contract funds that the principal deposited into the principal's account at the bank because the surety asserted its indemnity agreement trust fund provision rights. Factually, the progression went as follows. In 2013, the principal uh, executed the indemnity agreement with the surety. The surety then issued numerous bonds. In 2014, the bank loaned money to the principal and the principal opened an account at the bank to receive the contract funds paid to the principal. The bank obtained a perfected security interest in the principal's assets, including contract receivables, and in the account. When the principal received payments from project owners, it deposited the payments in the account. From November 1 through December 14, 2016, the principal deposited over $2.3 million of contract funds from the bonded contracts into the account, over $975,000 of which were swept by the bank to reduce the principal's obligations to the bank under the loans. During 2017, the surety paid performance and payment bond claims with net losses exceeding $2.3 million. Later in 2017, the surety sued the bank, contending that the bank converted the bonded contract funds from the account. The surety's theory was that it had superior rights as against the bank to the converted bonded contract funds because the bonded contract funds were trust funds under the indemnity agreement. We've all seen these indemnity agreement provisions. In this case, the indemnity agreement was pretty standard. It provided the, that the bonded contract funds were held in trust by the principal for the benefit of its subcontractors and suppliers and for the benefit of the surety to the extent that the surety paid those subs and suppliers. The court reviewed the elements of common law conversion, which required that the surety have an enforceable interest in the bonded contract funds that were in the principal's account at the bank. The court then reviewed the elements for both the establishment of a statutory and a common law express trust under Minnesota law, and then granted the bank's motion for summary judgment dismissing the surety's conversion claim. The reasoning was as follows. In Minnesota, there are both statutory and common law requirements to establish an express trust. The court found that no trust was established by the indemnity agreement trust fund provision in the bonded contract funds that were deposited into the account for two reasons. First, when the principal executed the indemnity agreement in 2013, the trust fund provision did not sufficiently identify as trust property the bonded contract funds the principal expected to receive in the future from obligees name of the bonded contract funds that were deposited into the account in 2016. Second, the surety did not provide any further manifestation or of intent or evidence to the bank of the principles or the surety's intention to impose a trust on those bonded contract funds that were deposited into the account in 2016. 
The bank first received a copy of the indemnity agreement trust fund provision in 2017 after the principal's 2016 deposit to and the bank sweep from the account of the alleged converted bonded contract funds. Furthermore, the court found that the principal's conduct, conduct after the execution of the indemnity agreement was inconsistent with the establishment of an express trust in the bonded contract funds. First, the principal merely endorsed each check for payment of the bonded contract funds as if they were the principal's property and then deposited them into the account. Second, the principal commingled the alleged bonded contract funds with non-trust funds in the account. There was no segregation of the bonded contract funds from other funds in the account. And third, none of the principal's financial records referred to the existence of the indemnity agreement creation of a trust fund in the bonded contract funds. Finally, the court stated that the surety's concept was all, conduct was also inconsistent with the establishment or existence of a trust because the surety never took action or required the principal to set up a separate bank trust account for the bonded contract funds as provided in the indemnity agreement trust fund provision. Based upon all the above, the court found that the surety could not establish the existence of a trust in the bonded contract funds deposited into the principal's account and the bank prevailed. Now it appears from the opinion that the surety made all of the possible arguments it could to support its position, but I'm not really surprised by the court's decision. I have written and or edited two books, the surety's indemnity agreement and the surety contract bond surety subrogation rights. And I've anticipated such a surety argument based upon the surety's indemnity agreement trust fund provision and that it might be made. But this is really the first case that I remember seeing when a surety raised the argument so clearly and, and as its only argument. Now the indemnity agreement book has a section on indemnity agreement trust fund provisions, but there are no citations to cases that are factually like the present case. The subrogation book does discuss the performance of payment bond surety's claims against the bank. Furthermore, on March 13, 2017, Mike Stover and I gave a surety today presentation entitled The Limitations on the Surety Subrogation Rights. One of the limitations concerned the surety competing with a secured lender bank for, un, for earned and paid bonded contract funds that end up in the principal's bank account and then are swept by the bank. Therefore, repeating what we said previously, the surety subrogation rights law is essentially when the earned and paid bonded contract funds are deposited into the principal's bank account prior to the principal's default, and the bank is without notice or knowledge that the principal has failed to pay its substance suppliers on the bonded project, the surety has been unable to recover from the bank pursuant to its subrogation rights the payments received by the bank, despite the fact that the surety may have subsequent losses under its bonds. However, when the principal is in default under the bonded contracts prior to the payment of the bonded contract funds, and the bank is aware of the principal's defaults, the surety may be entitled to obtain from the bank the bonded contract funds that were received by the bank and taken out of the account. 
Furthermore, the surety subrogation rights do remain and are enforceable with respect to the surety's assertion of a state trust fund statute rights that require a principal to pay its substance suppliers from payments from the bonded contract funds. So what are the takeaways from guarantee versus associated? The wording of the indemnity agreement trust fund provision is critical. And there may not be applicable language that will get around cases like guarantee versus associated. If, as it should, the indemnity agreement trust fund provision does require upon the surety's demand that the principal establish a separate trust account for the bonded contract funds, and this is not done, the court will likely find that no trust has ever been established in the bonded contract funds deposited prior to such a demand being made. But even if the surety makes such a demand, it may not assist the surety in recovering bonded contract funds that were previously swept by the bank from the principal's bank account. You also have to remember, if the surety does make a timely demand and the principal actually opens a separate trust account, preferably at another bank, the principal's bank will stop lending to the principal unless the secured lender bank agrees to such separate account and continues to lend money to the principal. The bank's unwillingness to lend money to the principal once the bonded contract funds are deposited to another bank account, not subject to the secured lender bank's rights, will definitely affect the surety's claims handling of the principal's defaults, and especially any ongoing performance bonds. In summary, if the bank is not going to fund and finance the principal, the surety might have to. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. So I'm going to talk about the illegal contract as a defense to the surety. In Hanover Insurance Company versus Dunbar Mechanical Contractors uh, out of the uh, United States District Court for the Eastern District of Arkansas, the United States Army Corps of Engineers awarded a service-disabled veteran set-aside contract to Dunbar Mechanical in the amount of $2 million. The contract was for the completion of construction on a project known as Ditch 27 in tributaries in Arkansas. I don't understand why ditches cost $2 million in Arkansas. It's just our tax dollars at work, I guess. As noted, the project was a service-disabled veteran-owned business, which I'm going to refer to as the SDVOB. Uh, set-aside project. Thus, in order to receive the award of the contract, the bidder must have been a, a SDVOB. Further, under the SDVOB laws, the contractor is prohibited from paying to non-SDVOB subs more than 85% of the amount paid by the government under the set-aside contract. In other words, the uh, SDVOB must perform 15% of the value of the work on the project. So Dunbar received the award, and it was a valid SDVOB and had to comply with the laws. It entered into a subcontract with Harding Enterprises in the amount of $1.8 million. Remember, this is a $2 million contract, and they just subcontracted $1.8 million of it uh, to this Harding outfit. Uh, and Harding was going to perform all of the work under the contract, and uh, which this constituted about 87.6% of Dunbar's contract price. In addition, Dunbar hired one of the owners of Harding to act as the project manager for an additional payment of $62,000. So the subcontract amount and the employment agreement together totaled just over 90% of the, uh, of the Dunbar uh, Corps of Engineers contract. So Dunbar also required Harding to provide payment and performance bonds to secure the subcontract 
and Hanover provided those bonds. Sometime later, Dunbar terminated the subcontract and employment agreement with Harding and made demand upon Hanover to perform under the performance bond. Hanover conducted its investigation and discovered the violations of the applicable laws and denied the claim. Hanover subsequently filed a declaratory judgment action seeking a declaration that Hanover had no obligations under the bond because the subcontract was an unenforceable illegal contract. After filing suit, Hanover then moved for summary judgment. In granting summary judgment uh, in favor of Hanover, the court found that the subcontract between Dunbar and Harding violated federal law. The court stated, quote, any act which is forbidden either by the common law or statutory law, whether it is malum in se or merely malum prohibitum, indictable or only subject to a penalty or forfeiture, however otherwise prohibited by a statute or the common law, cannot be the foundation of a valid contract, nor can anything auxiliary to or performative of such act. So the court further held that because the subcontract is illegal, Hanover is not obligated to fulfill its obligations under the bond, which, in, which ensured performance of that subcontract. The court further noted that if the surety were to perform under its bond, it would have had liability under the False Claims Act. In many ways, this case, uh, the Hanover case, is the flip side of the Skolik Narula case, uh, the False Claims Act case our office is involved with uh, in the um, uh, D.C. District Court. The, uh, Skol in Skolik, the, the unfounded allegations are that the surety should be liable under the False Claims Act because the surety provided bonds to a principal it knew or should have known was not a valid SCVOB. Here, the Hanover Court is saying in part that Maturity is not required to perform under its bonds. If in doing so, it would be exposed to False Claims Act liability. So the takeaway from this case is that the surety must be vigilant in its investigation to determine if there is illegal conduct which might expose the surety to liability. And if the surety discovers illegality, it may be able to use that as a defense. I have a practice pointer article in the um, ABA FSLC newsletter, Winter Edition. It's coming out soon. It talks about these issues titled Being Mindful of the False Claims Act. So be sure to check that out uh, if you're a member of the FSLC. George? My last case is called Connolly Construction versus Travelers. In the Connolly uh, Construction versus Travelers case, which is an unpublished opinion out of the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals Third Circuit, the general contractor principal and it surely defended against the claims of the subcontractor. The court found that the subcontractor had knowingly and voluntarily waived its claims by signing releases and change orders, and that the general contractor principal did not waive its right to rely on those releases and change orders in denying the subcontractor's claims. Actually, the court found that the subcontractor executed monthly waiver and release forms as required by the subcontract in order to get payment. Over the course of the project, the subcontractor executed five change orders, and all except the first one contained language releasing the principal from any additional cost. While the subcontractor objected to the broad release language in the first change order and proposed new language to preserve a future claim, the subcontractor then signed the four subsequent change orders containing the same very broad release language to which it had once objected to. The subcontractor refused to sign one last change order out of concern that would waive the potential subcontractor's claims that it had. 
With respect to the subcontractor, the appeals court stated that the trial court did not clearly err in finding that the subcontractor had knowingly and voluntarily waived its claims against the general contractor, principal, and the surety. Now, the subcontractor also contended that the general contractor principal waived its rights to enforce the releases by submitting the following evidence to the trial court. The principal's testimony that it did not always enforce its waivers, the principal's testimony from its senior project manager on the project that I will make you whole at the end of this job, you have to trust me. Evidence that despite the Waivers, the principal would sometimes pay the subcontractor for, for, for performing extra work. There was evidence that the principal would sometimes pay the subcontractor without the required, uh, required releases. And there was evidence of the principal's similar contact with other subcontractors on the project. Now, since the trial court held that these statements and actions did not amount to a waiver by the principal, and this is not a clear error. The appeals court upheld the trial court's ruling that the general contractor principle did not clearly and unambiguously relinquish its right to enforce the release language in the agreement. Now, none of this is new to you. We all have to look at all the documents and determine whether there has been a release of any claims. However, this case is a reminder that in defending against a subcontractor's payment bond claim, all the documents, including the payment application, releases, and any change order releases must re be reviewed carefully to determine if the claimant subcontractor has released its claims in making, it is making against the principal and maturity. But this is also a reminder that the surety can get burned by the same payment applications and change order releases. Specifically, when a surety takes over the performance of a bonded project when its principal, whether it's a general contractor or subcontractor, is terminated by the obligee, the surety may be the one signing such documents with the releases attached. As a result, the takeover surety may waive and release claims that it has for extra work, changes, delays, and other issues during the completion of the project. And how many times have we cringed upon hearing from our completion contractor or even our construction consultant that there is an oral understanding with the obligee's project manager about something? Delays, bartered exchanges, the completion contractor will do this and the owner general contractor won't require that. These all get lost in the shuffle at the end of the project. The following words are not sufficient for a takeover surety. I will make you whole at the end of the job. You have to trust me. As in Conley versus Travelers, trust me won't preserve a claim or overcome a written release executed by a takeover surety for its completion contract. Mike? I think that's right up there with the checks in the mail. Um, all right. So before we uh, open up the line for any questions, I want to let everybody know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, February 10th. 2020 at 1230. Upcoming events in the surety industry, the, uh, the Philadelphia Surety Claim Association will hold its lunch meeting January 15th at Mangiano's in Philadelphia. I'm planning to be there. Hope to see you there. Of course, the uh, ABA FSLC will hold its midwinter meeting uh, January 28th through the 30th in New York City. I'll be leading a panel discussion on financing, so I hope to see you there. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. We look forward to speaking with you again next month. Now I'm going to try to unmute the line. Okay, so are there questions, anybody? I, All right. I just, I, I just wanted to uh, um, make a comment that that uh, the, the illegal contract uh, has al was also in play in a state court case last year that uh, we had. It was in the trial court in New Jersey involving Atlantic City Board of Education, and they found that the underlying contract was uh, signed without authority, construction contract, and we won summary judgment on that case. Uh, I don't know that whether it's reported, but it is a state court case uh, that you might want to look up. Yeah, we've, we've actually got, uh, I've got several state court cases pending right now where we're making the, the illegal contract defense. And ours is based on the, 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 the GC hires a middleman and treats him as, a, as an independent subcontractor who then hires a bunch of undocumented workers to perform the work. These guys are all paid in cash. There's no W-2, no 1099s, no you know, certified payrolls or anything. There's no insurance paid, no taxes paid. And you know, they're coming to us making a payment bond claim and we're saying, sorry guys, this is all illegal. You can't do this kind of work and not pay taxes and not pay insurance and, you know, and not, not file the necessary paperwork that so we're not paying you. So they, they, surprisingly, we thought, you know, they would just go away, but they actually filed suit. So we're now, we're now litigating this uh, illegality issue in three different courts. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But uh, the surety, you know, the surety in, in the light of the Skolnick case, what are you going to do if you if you pay these guys and then then you're subjecting yourself to DOL and uh, and and False Claims Act and IRS liability? I mean, you can't. Uh, and and, you can't, and you're also subjecting yourself to more more claimants coming out of the woodwork. Right, right, that too, that too. So, you know, in our case, and it's it's funny. There's a there's a DOL position that basically says, look, the the fact that somebody's an illegal alien doesn't mean that you you cannot pay them. In this case, it's different because they were all the all the individual workers were actually paid. This is the claim of the middleman who brought them all to the project. So we have a I think we have a stronger case against that person. But so I think it's it's interesting. I think sureties should really start to look at this concept of uh, you know is the contract being performed legally or is it a legal contract as a defense? Mike Silver, Mike, this is Jim Knox. Hey Jim. Yes. Hi. Um, this is my first uh, of your conferences. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and this question about the illegality of the underlying contract as a defense for the surety. And I recall it coming up uh, at least out in California in the context of whether the contractor was licensed. And I wonder if you have a comment about that, where, where the contractor, let's say, is unlicensed. Yes, and yes. And in, not just in California, but anywhere else. Yeah. Maryland, there's a case in Maryland where, where that, that very issue came up. There was an architect that wasn't licensed. And the way they did the contract, the unlicensed architect was actually doing all the work. And the court, the court said, no, you can't recover. Same thing in another case where the contractor was supposed to be licensed. These are both in Maryland. Uh, so yeah, that issue of, of, of being unlicensed can lead to the the illegal contract. So it could be it could be a surety defense as well. No reason why why did why we should not think so.
Yeah, okay. no, I think it's worth a shot. All right, any, any questions, anybody else? All right, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. And happy New Year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.